0: to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. From Romans 14, verses 1 to 12. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. You, then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Fergus, we've got your music stand. So, if you lose your music, I've got it. Um... We should pray before we kind of work out what that passage that tells you not to get stuck into vegetarians is all about. I need the clicker. you have All right. Let's let's pray again. Uh, Lord, we do long for your precepts. We long for revelation, for enlightenment, to guide us through the mess of this world and all the difficult conversations and challenges we face. Lord, enlighten us by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, We live in a world of judgment. Social media is built on judgment. The making of judgments is the fuel that powers the rocket. Every platform has some kind of judgment button Uh, Sometimes it's just a like, TikTok and Instagram have hearts. That one, that's a cat slapping a seal. It's it's pretty good, actually. Anyway, not surprised, it's popular. But the dumb Gen X platforms have negative reactions as well. Twitter experimented with down, down votes for a little while. Facebook crazily has an angry reaction button. I mean, what were they thinking? Uh, that's just Nyan Cat. If you've forgotten Nyan Cat, I like to remind people periodically. It's not related to the sermon, but it is on the internet. But it's all just judgments, right? Just, just judgments. It's, it's valuations. It's people saying what they think of things. Comments do the same. When we comment, we, we almost always make a judgment, don't we? I love this. This is great. What a stupid thing to say! Whenever we post anything, we know that it will be exposed to judgment by others. Is anyone here prepared to say that they don't care what reactions their posts get? If if, if that's you, that is just fantastic. Well done. You're amazing. Um, for most of us, posting though is followed by scanning for. Reactions, checking to see how it's going down, and it's, it's, frankly, awful. It can be one of the most stressful aspects of life, especially for teenagers. Because sometimes, you know, judgments are encouraging. Sometimes they're just disappointing. And sometimes they're really ugly. Social media is full of anger and sarcastic ridicule and even contempt Contempt is when a negative judgment becomes a negative judgment of a whole person. Do you know what I mean? So that it's, it's, it's like this person, for what they've said, what they've done, they are hopeless. They're a disaster. They're pathetic. That's contempt. Now, there's no point pretending that none of this matters and that social media, it's just a small thing. You know, It's just, oh, it's, it's not very nice, but it doesn't really matter. No, it does matter because... This is one of our main, what we could call, schools of moral formation. This is one of the main contexts that's shaping us as people, that is forming the way that we think and feel and react. And so we ought to sit up and notice when suddenly, in his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul gives a whole long discussion to the issue of making judgments. He talks about passing judgment. He talks about contempt. And in a sentence that should make our social media infused blood run cold, he says in verse 22, this is not in the bit you've got in your outlines, it's in the bit that we'll look at next week. He says, blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. Just substitute likes or hearts there for a second. Over the next three weeks, we're going to take in this discussion in Romans chapter 14, the beginning of chapter 15, and we're going to see how the Bible calls the Christian community to be a different school of moral formation. There are lessons here that I think are desperately needed and that can shape the the church to be something deeply refreshing in a world full of judgment and contempt. Today we're beginning with the first part of Paul's argument, where he calls the church at Rome to think carefully about judgments and to remember above all that they will be judged. And he says that throws everything in a different light. Well, look at what he says in three steps. First, he talks about the fact that everyone is someone else's servant. Second, he talks about the fact that our lives belong to the Lord, every inch of them. And thirdly, he reminds us that we will all one day have to be judged. We will give an account. that's where we're going, that's that's the the points you've got on your outline as well. Okay, first then, Paul begins this section with a call in verse 1. It's printed in your outlines uh, if you want to look at the text. But here it is as well. Accept the one, this is his call, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. The word accept can be translated receive or welcome. Other English translations have it like that, receive or welcome. It's basically about being open to friendship and relationship. And this call introduces the whole discussion from here on. Paul calls for one group, probably the bigger group in the church in Rome. He's later going to call this group the strong. He calls them to receive and welcome those who are what he calls weak in faith, without fighting about the issues that they differ on. Um, Later on, he's going to broaden this call to both groups. He wants people to show each other generosity without accepting one another, without forcing the point. Now, all of this is interesting and tricky. What does he mean by calling people weak and strong? what are these disputable matters? The best way to get at these questions, I think, is just to plow on through the passage and see what he says next, because Paul starts to explain. So have a look at verse 2. Paul writes, One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt. The one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. Okay, what the heck was going on here? The issue is not vegetarianism, nor was it just the issue of whether it's okay to eat meat because of the damage that livestock farming does to the climate, although that might be a relevant application of some of this. The most likely thing was that behind this was a difference between Gentile and Jewish Christians over aspects of the Old Testament law. In what follows, uh, Paul's going to talk about what he calls special days, which probably meant the Sabbath and some of the Jewish festivals. And at the end of this discussion, he's going to talk about the mission to the Gentiles. So the most likely thing is that there were people within the church in Rome who believed that as Christian Jews, so they were probably Jews who'd become Christians, the laws about food and Sabbath were still an important guide to right conduct. If all this is, you don't know what's going on, basically in the Old Testament law, the Jewish law, there's these laws about what you're allowed to eat and about keeping the Sabbath day. And it's possible that some of these Jews who'd become Christians thought, yeah, we're Christians, but we should still do those things. That's the right way to live. But the Gentile majority of the church thought actually they were free to eat anything because they weren't under the Jewish law. That was the whole point of Christ. He'd come to save us from all that. If all of that's a mystery, I really encourage you to read the book of Romans or come and talk to me, but there's a good story there. But that's probably the issue behind it. And this helps us see that by, by weak in faith, by that phrase, weak in faith, what Paul meant was, was not exactly that they were weak in their belief in Jesus, now, he meant that the way they understood their faith didn't allow them to do certain things. Um, it didn't give them the confidence to take certain steps, whereas for others, it did. This, the issue is what faith allows people to do, whether it gives people a robust conscience in relation to certain actions or an uncertain conscience. And, and you can imagine it, right? Just stop and think. Imagine that you had followed the food laws and kept the Sabbath all your life. It would be a really big step, wouldn't it, to stop worrying about those things because you'd put your trust in Jesus, to, to, to start to go, actually, I can do these things. That would be challenging. That said, there is no doubt that using the terms weak and strong, as he does here, it does imply that, one view is better. And actually, as the argument goes on, Paul makes it clear that he he does think that the strong have the right understanding of their faith. Uh, In verse 14, which is not in our passage, we'll look at it next week, Paul's going to say this. He's going to say, I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. So, Paul doesn't try to adopt a neutral position here, uh, where he says, well, some people say this, some people say that. I don't know. They're both interesting. He, He doesn't do that. Actually, I think Paul clearly does hope that some of the weak will come to change their minds. But that said, what we need to see first is that Paul's main response is not to argue about the issues or to try and convince the weak of his view. He could have done that, right? Often in his letters, Paul does try and convince people of a view. Um, But here, his main response is not to try to persuade people, but to call for restraint in judgment. Restraint, holding back in judgment from both sides. He says, you guys don't treat them with contempt because they're kind of uptight and legalistic. And you guys don't judge them because they're so relaxed. He calls the Roman Christians on both sides to hold back in their judgments, to be restrained. Why? Why does he do this? Why should they be restrained? Because... The people they are judging already have a judge. And that judge thinks they are terrific. Here's what he says. This is from verse 3 again. The one who does not eat anything, everything, must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge? Someone else's servant. To their own master's servants stand or fall, and they will stand. For the Lord is able to make them stand. Paul calls his readers, he calls us, he calls them to see each other in a profound way as someone else's servants. And servants, moreover, who are accepted, who the Master will one day judge, and he will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Servants who will stand at the end, for the Lord is able to make them stand. He says, you you may not be able to see how that's going to happen. You, You might not be able to see how on earth they, those crazy people, how they are going to turn out all right, but you have the promise of God that they will, because he can make them stand. You know, I think this is one of the most profound moments in the whole letter of Romans. It has the power to shape and to enrich community. If we can just get and just see, just respect the fact that each of us is accountable, not in the first place to ourselves or to one another, but to God. We are all someone else's servant and we will give him an account. That's not to say there's no place for discussion and for conversation, and for mutual accountability, being accountable to one another. There is. And Paul's letters give plenty of evidence for it, right? The idea is not that we are all isolated individuals making our own way, courageous and independent of each other. No, that's not the idea. The church has to be, and it always is, it's a community, richly interconnected and interdependent. But there is a place for restraint for community to work there is also a place for holding back for letting others be for respecting the fact that we are all someone else's servant and that place is the line marked by judgment and by contempt it appears at the point that we want to say something like he's a disaster Or, that's stupid. Or, I'm so sick of her having a problem with that. I'm so sick of her worrying about that. Or, you can't be a Christian and do that. That's so unchristian. That is the point at which we are called to hold back and to remember that the one we're talking about actually belongs to someone else. And the someone they belong to Thinks they're great and will make them stand in the end. The Christian life, you see, is not lived in the end for ourselves or for one another, but for God. That's how the passage continues. Paul goes on to describe how every aspect of life is for the Lord, from eating and drinking to the whole of life and, and even death. Look what he says from verse 5. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. We see here the same issues that seem to have been tricky ones in Rome. Some wanted to keep the Sabbath holy, a special day. Um, probably the same people thought that it was wrong to eat certain kinds of meat, either because of what the law said about food, or because meat in those days was often uh, used in pagan rituals before it was eaten, and they might have thought that was unclean. Now, to really get at, to really get at what Paul's doing here, I think we, we might need to insert our own issues at this point, in order to understand it better. This makes the sermon, to be honest, a little bit more stressful, uh, but you'll be all right. Like, it's, it's kind of easier if we can just live in this imaginary world of the first century, but when we start to think about us, it's a, it's a bit more stressful. Although, there are actually churches, even today, that have real trouble over the Sabbath. And food, as I said, is becoming controversial again. Should we eat beef these days, knowing what we know about the climate. There's some people who feel very strongly about that. But let's think of some other examples. There are some Christians who feel strongly that people shouldn't go to nightclubs, because they seem to them to be basically pagan temples, but others do so happily. There are some who feel, if you've never heard of this, this is going to seem really weird, but just go with it for a second. There are some who feel there is no way a Christian should ever do yoga because of its origins and connection to Buddhism. But others think that it can be redeemed by giving thanks to God. Now, it's important to notice that the issues we need to think about, they're not just trivial and unimportant, at least they're not to the people involved. It's, it, it's sometimes easy to think this, especially if none of the issues mentioned make you feel strongly. If, if I say those things and you're like, what? What? a Weird. Who, who cares about that? You might think that these are just trivial issues, but actually the, the issues we need to think about are ones people really care about. Another example we, we might insert here to get our heads in the right place is vaccination. Obviously, Many of us, including myself, felt we were free to receive the COVID vaccine. Others, though, felt strongly that they should not get it. Another example is the marriage referendum in 2017. Some felt free to vote yes. Others felt strongly that they should vote no. Now is it getting a little bit Are you feeling the 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 way there's a kind of emotional tone to the issues you see. Uh, Raising these examples does risk getting us lost in those issues. I don't want to do that. But I think it's useful because it, it gives us a sense of the kind of emotional feel of the arguments Paul was grappling with. Right, The things he was talking about, they were things that upset people and divided people. Do notice, though, that there are things that don't fit in this category. There are some differences of opinion that cannot be called disputable matters, because they're actually too big for a community to be able to live with. If someone thought, for example, let me give you some examples that I hope will be not a problem. If somebody thought that there was no problem, and this is slight this might be a kind of upsetting uh, if if you've had anything to do with domestic violence, but I give it to you as an example of something that I think is morally clear. If somebody thought that there was no problem with a husband beating his wife and children, or if somebody thought that it was fine to pursue sexual relationships with married people, those are not differences that a community could accept and live with. They're not differences you can say, oh, well, some say this, some say that, you know interesting people on both sides. You can't do that with that. There are some things that a community needs to insist on a view about in order to hold together. I'm going to say a bit more about all this next week, I hope, when we get to the second half of chapter 14. For now, though, that's just to kind of try and get us a sense of what kind of issues Paul's talking about. But let's notice now that Paul's point here is not about the different kinds of issues, we have to think about. It's about the way the Christian life is, is more than just conformity to a certain pattern of life. It's about our convictions. It's about our hearts and minds because it is lived before God. Do you see what he says there before in verse 5? Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. That's the character of the Christian life, you see. It's lived before the Lord. And so it's possible for people to do different things, even perhaps things that are a mistake at one level or that we can't understand. It's possible for them to do them in a way that is still deeply faithful because they do it for the Lord. The person who doesn't drink, thinking that it is wrong for them to do so, even if to another this seems unnecessary, that person is doing that for the Lord. And that is beautiful. The person who does yoga stretches, giving thanks for the body and its flexibility and for the gift of breath. I just was going to make a joke. It didn't really work. I do some yoga stretches, and it's very hard for me to give thanks for the gift of flexibility, because it's waning in my case. But I imagine some people can do this. You know, maybe that person is underestimating the way yoga is connected to Buddhist religion, okay? But they are still, they might be doing it for the Lord. They might be giving it to God. And that's the Christian life, you see. It's not, it's not lived for ourselves or even for one another. It's lived for God. Listen to what Paul says from verse 7. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord, So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. What this means, I think, is simply that the whole of life and even the experience of death, it's been conquered by Jesus. There is no part of our lives, not even our dying, no action or habit or area of existence or dumb decision that does not belong to Jesus. That is not his domain because of his death and resurrection. For those of us who are Christians, every part of our lives has been claimed by our master. And he is at work there shaping and changing us by his spirit. That doesn't mean everything we do is right, just the way it's supposed to be. We all know that's not true but it means that every part of our lives is meant to be given to Christ. You know what Paul's doing here, I think? I think he is subtly, carefully putting in a framework that will allow people gradually to move out of entrenched and stuck positions. He's giving people a way of thinking about their lives as captive to the lordship of Christ, and what he hopes, I think, is that people will take this seriously. He hopes that those who are eating meat without thinking will begin to give thanks. See, when he says, the one who eats, eats to the Lord, I actually suspect a whole lot of the people he was writing to just were eating whatever because that's what they'd always done. But Paul says, no, 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 you should be eating to the Lord. And he's hoping that they will start to do that In the same way, he hopes that those who are keeping the Sabbath will start doing so because they love Jesus, and not just because that's what they've always done. And I think Paul thinks that if people will start to be thoughtful and prayerful like that, then it will shift things. People will start to think about their positions and not just take them for granted and fight about them. Paul is giving the Romans here a really powerful tool for thinking about matters such as this. It's a way of approaching all sorts of decisions that draws attention to what we have in common and that opens up space for thought. And he gives this tool to us as well. What we need to do is remember that we live not just for ourselves, nor even for one another, we live for the Lord. Every aspect of your life and mine has been claimed by Jesus through his death and resurrection. Every inch of it belongs to him. Every decision, every action belongs to him and must be given to him. And what he asks of us is that we take thought. Not just for what we want to do or what we feel comfortable doing or what we have always done Or what we even feel we have a right to do. He asks us that we think about what honors Him and what is good, what He wants us to do and is good. Brothers and sisters, let me just ask you a simple question Are you giving everything to Him? It belongs to Him. Your life, your work, your play, your sleep, and your waking, your promises and passions your sickness and your health, your youth and your old age and even your death. It is his, he won it through his death and resurrection. Are you giving it to him in thanksgiving and in care and in thoughtfulness about what is right? Because let me assure you that we will all one day have to give him an account of what we were doing. This is how Paul finishes this part of the discussion. Look from verse 10. He finishes like this. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Paul finishes this section by returning to the themes that he began with. The way the reality of final judgment should make us restrain the judgments we make here and now. Should make us hold back our contempt. Back in verse 4, if you remember, Paul emphasizes the fact that those we judge will have to stand before Christ one day. Now he emphasizes the fact that we will have to stand in that place as well. And that has got to make us humble. Paul is only riffing on Jesus here. Jesus said, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Each of us will stand before him who said that. You will stand before him, and he will know how we have treated one another. Now, can I really emphasize, it's not that we need to be terrified by that thought. Actually, incredibly, we can be confident. But here's the thing. The reason we can be confident is no different to the reason we can be confident for others. For those we attempted to judge. Even for those we are tempted to condemn and we think are stupid, because it is the confidence that comes from God's word, from the good news that in Christ God has accepted us, and that he loves us, and that we will stand because the Lord is able to make us stand. You see, none of us can look at life, can look at our lives, none of us can look at our lives and think, yep, I've got this. Final judgment, in the bag. It's, you know, I'm really, I'm nailing this life thing, and I'm sure when I stand before Jesus, he will he'll go, wow, you really, you really pulled that off with style. That's not, if you are thinking like that, guys, it is false confidence, and it's dangerous. Don't, don't do it. But we can have confidence before the judgment because of the wonderful word of grace we hear it in verse 4 that we may it's the same word that we may trust for our brothers and sisters as much as we may trust it for us god has accepted them god has accepted us in christ you see between that promise that between that promise that we will stand at the judgment And the reality of our lives as they are now with all their mess and mistakes, between that promise and our lives now, there is always a gap, a mysterious gap. And we can be confident that it will be crossed in the end only because we have this promise that the master before whom we will stand, he is the one who loves us and who can make us stand. It is not, and it never will be obvious, how that will come about. It is a mystery. It is the mystery of sanctification. And it's got to make us humble. For we will give an account before the judgment seat of Christ. And, and, and who can understand how they are going to be able to stand on that day? Who can know how that is going to happen? And yet we have the promise of God that it will, it can. Okay, let's finish. Paul's discussion here raises lots of questions that we haven't been able to look at today. I do hope we'll get somewhere on them over the next couple of weeks. I'm really going to go for it, uh, and we'll get a bit messy, see how we go. But we need to begin this week where he does, with the reminder that we all have a master, we have a Lord, and every inch of our lives belongs to him. And we will all one day stand before him and, be, and, and have to give an account. We can approach that day with confidence because we know the love of God for us in Jesus, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That fills that hope with confidence. But we cannot approach that day with arrogance. We are called rather to humility before that truth, to examining ourselves and thinking about our own lives and how we need to give them to the Lord, and we are called to restraint in the way we think of and speak to and about our brothers and sisters. Friends, there will be things that other people do or worry about. Or insist upon that we think are mad. There will be things that upset us. There will be things that we cannot understand and that we think are dangerous. But our first instinct is meant to be one of restraint and humility. Because we know that for all of us, there remains a journey to be taken before that last day. There is a gap to be spanned by the merciful power of the Holy Spirit. And we also know that all of us have a master who gave himself to save us and who is able to make even messy, foolish people like us stand in the end. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, it is an awesome thought that we will stand before you and give an account of our lives. Lord, when we look at our lives, it is not obvious at all how we will stand on that day. And yet we know that through your death and resurrection, there is forgiveness. There is new life. There is renewal again and again There is an open door to repentance and learning to walk in new ways. And so we trust you and we hold fast to this promise that you have accepted us and you can make us stand, Lord, do that work in us. And make us so mindful of that journey that we are not people whose lips are full of contempt and judgment. Oh Lord, teach us to make our way with humility and gentleness. Amen.